welcome back to American Scene, the show where we talk about movies with American in the title and what they have to say about American identity, culture, and values. My name is Ben Rosen, and today on the show we're talking about the 2007 film American Pastime, a coming-of-age story and family drama set against the Japanese incarceration during World War II. To do that, we have a very special guest joining us, Susan Kame is the author of When Can We Go Back to America? Voices of Japanese-American Incarceration During World War II. She is an adjunct professor of teaching in the Van Hunnick History Department of USC's Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. She created and teaches a course on the Japanese-American incarceration experience and its ramifications today. She is recognized as a preeminent scholar on the topic, and the awards and honors she has received include a 2022 USC Phi Kappa Phi Faculty Recognition Award. Susan, I can't thank you enough for being here, and I'd love to start by learning more about the USC class you teach. What do you cover, and and what sorts of projects do you assign to your students? Thanks so much, Ben. It's certainly my pleasure to be on the show with you. My course is an upper division seminar. It's open to students of any major at USC. Uh, The class fills at 15. I created it to be an elective for an interdisciplinary major called Law, History, and Culture. So generally the students are interested in social policy, identity, and intersectionality. We cover the entire trajectory of the Japanese American experience in the US from the racially discriminatory roots of our country's immigration and naturalization policies to the pre-World War II prejudice against first the Chinese and then the Japanese immigrants through the incarceration experience itself and then the ramifications that continue to this day. Um, I think an important part of the course is to draw parallels to other episodes in history that have impacted other marginalized minorities and to what's happening in our society and world today. Over the years I've been offering the course, very few of the students have actually had any Japanese-American heritage or any family connection to the incarceration. So generally, they know very little or nothing about this before taking the class. As their class project, uh, students choose a topic to research for a paper and a presentation. And in almost every semester, someone decides to write about the role of baseball during the incarceration, first in the temporary detention facilities that were euphemistically called assembly centers, and then especially in the long-term detention centers run by the War Relocation Authority, which we colloquially call the camps. So this film takes place at Topaz, which is one of those 10 WRA camps where the Japanese Americans spent the duration of the war. Wow, that uh, that certainly covers a lot in uh, in just one semester. Uh, you mentioned that for, for many students, this is their first time learning about this part of, of history. And, and I have to admit, I, I never learned about this in school. Um, I grew up in the Northeast. I, I don't know, maybe you grew up in, in California. Was this at all part of your education or how did you come to learn about it uh, and your family's experience? Yeah, great question. Generally, this isn't taught in schools, West Coast or otherwise. And if it's mentioned at all, I generally see it as what I call the Encyclopedia Britannica level. It shows a photo of the USS uh, Arizona bombed at Pearl Harbor and attributes the incarceration as a direct consequence uh, to the the Pearl Harbor attack, and so seemingly justifying on that basis. Um, And if you read my book or take my class, you'll understand that this is a false narrative. My USC students, including those that have grown up in California or other West Coast states, 
um, have actually sometimes been quite angry that their K-12 education did not include this and other examples of what uh, history teachers call difficult history. I certainly didn't learn about this myself in school and even in my law school, uh, law constitutional law classes, the wartime Supreme Court decisions that upheld the constitutionality and incarceration were hardly mentioned at all. Um, and on top of that, um, and this is an important thing to un understand about the intergenerational impact, is that my grandparents, who were mostly, um, that generation was mostly uh, just Japanese speaking, very few of them spoke English, and my parents and their generation that were the American-born second generation, and all the others who uh, were part of the uh, count that we now say is up to over 125,000, uh, who experienced the incarceration, for many complex reasons, could not and would not talk about it. And so as a result, my generation, um, that we call the third generation Sanseis, grew up completely ignorant of what our first generation immigrant grandparents and our second generation American citizen Nisei went through. Uh, we also didn't understand how it affected them throughout the rest of their lives. So you could say we lived under this cone of silence. So my awareness about it came about in a pretty atypical way for a sensei, and that was a function of my father being very involved in the Japanese American community, and that he included me in the activities that he was involved in. So when the movement got going in the late 1970s and early 1980s, you know, while I was still a student, uh, to seek some government acknowledgement that the incarceration was wrong, I joined him in this work. And this became known as the Redress Campaign. And the term comes from a phrase in the First Amendment that as citizens, we have the right to petition our government for a redress of grievances. So it was really through the work in the Redress Campaign, the time that I spent with my father and other Nisei survivors, that I learned so much about our community history and my own family history. As a result, I think I had a special relationship with my father that my three other brothers who weren't involved in the same way um, didn't have that same kind of bond with him as a result. Wow. Yeah. And, and the relationship between parents and children is really a central part of this movie that we're talking about today, American Pastime. What did, what did you think of the movie? Had you ever heard of it before? Had you ever seen it before? I had not seen it before, and so I'm so glad that you brought it to my attention. I think Desmond Nakano really nailed it. Uh, it captured so many aspects and emotions of the incarceration experience. Baseball is a great vehicle, I think, as a backdrop for lots of the different sub-stories. Um, playing baseball and watching baseball was a big part of camp life. First as something to do, whether as a fan or a player, but also as their collective and individual ways of expressing being an American. It's as if they were saying, hey, despite how you're treating me as someone suspected of being disloyal to America, I'm actually all American and what could be more American than baseball? I was really impressed um, by how uh, the filmmakers incorporated photos and especially video film from the era. I'm pretty familiar with the various photo collections, but it was really great to see the, the film, the, the videos. And as the credits rolled at the end, I enjoyed seeing uh, many familiar faces uh, and names. Um, I think this film would make an impression on anyone who did not have knowledge or a connection to this. 
And for those who are family descendants of incarcerates, there are lots of um, Easter eggs that they would spot. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think uh, as as I rewatched the film a couple times, the incorporation of that primary source footage did a lot to expand upon, you know, not just the, the story that was being told, and but but the experience of, of so many others in these camps, and not just at Topaz, but, but other camps as well. And one of the elements that I expect the community will, will recognize and probably relate to is the, the family and parent-child relationships. Uh, can you can you tell us more about that and, and how you read into those uh, relationships that are um, portrayed in the film? Yeah, sure. There's a lot there. Uh, first, uh, well, let's start with uh, Lane, the number one son, uh, and he's uh, the classic number one son. His father even refers to him as Ichiban, which means number one. He's, he's the straight-laced one. He's the one his parents are counting on to do the right thing. And then there's the second son, Lyle, who's wrapped up with other things that might seem frivolous to uh, the Issei and the Nisei generations, like the jazz saxophone. And it's really hard on his Issei father when Lane surprises them with the news that he's enlisted. And so from the perspective of the Issei, they've already lost everything material in their lives. And uh, now the possibility that they would lose their sons in combat uh, is just more than they can they can take. And uh, there's uh, the dynamic that's going on also between the two brothers. There's envy and jealousy uh, going both ways. I think the film um, captured a lot of some uh, really emotional moments for the incarcerees. Um, for example, what is the effort that his mother goes to to present Lane before he leaves with this, the stitched senenbari, uh, which um, they really wanted to believe that that was going to be a token, a memento that was going to ensure their, their safety. And then him waving goodbye from the back of the truck. Uh, those are moments that actually got me. <laughs> Those are, those are really tough. Those are really tough moments for those families. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You you see the impact uh, of giving Lane the son and Bari and the community coming together to to stitch it for him. And even as somebody who uh, doesn't have um, a Japanese heritage, uh, you can recognize how significant that that moment is. And and Lane's enlistment is is obviously significant uh, for the dynamic of the family and what the parents stand to lose. Uh, but outside of some some source footage and, and mention of the the Vosges Mountain rescue, we don't actually see any any war uh, footage or, mm. or efforts of the four forty seconds. Um, I really appreciated the training montage and that voiceover. That feels like uh, you know this this like military. Um, I don't want to. I guess it could be propaganda. I guess mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. To, to kind of get people maybe comfortable with the idea of of. Japanese soldiers uh, in the U.S. military, but they mention they kind of embody the American ideals of democracy, equality of opportunity, regardless of race, creed, color, or ancestry. And uh, they mention that their their spirit is embodied by this slogan, go for broke, uh, meaning shoot the works, risk everything, go all out, never let up. And I'd, I'd love if you could just speak uh, briefly or, or as much as you'd like, really, to the importance of the 442nd infantry regiment and uh, the 100th infantry battalion. 
Yeah, there's so much to say and, and give honor to the 100th, 442nd, and also the MIS, the Military Intelligence Service that served in, in the Pacific. Their uh, accomplishments and contributions, bravery, um, are not as well known uh, because um, they were serving in the Pacific and in classified missions, uh, information that was not declassified for many decades later. So we hear more about the 442nd and the 100th, um, but certainly the MIS also were part of what we consider the contributions of the Nisei soldiers. Um, what's important to have as context is that when Pearl Harbor was bombed, the immediate reaction of the U.S. military was to freeze the ability of uh, anybody of Japanese ancestry to serve. Um, there were those that were already in the service, uh, and there's lots of different ways that they were they were treated. But it was not in, into the war when JCL, the Japanese American Citizens League, lobbied the U.S. Army. The, the Navy would never agree, but lobbied the U.S. Army to allow Nisei young men to volunteer. So to reverse the position that the military took, the government took um, after Pearl Harbor. And they did this because uh, the war was dragging on and they realized that they were going to need more troops. So uh, the JCL took this position because uh, there were leaders, uh, Mike Masoka, in particular, that felt that unless we're willing to go for broke, show everything, uh, spill our blood, if that's what it takes, uh, we want to be able to show our loyalty that way. And Lane says this when he says, I can prove I'm as American as anybody else. Um, most of the volunteers came from Hawaii. And, uh, but remarkably enough, there were several hundred that did volunteer from behind the barbed wire in the camps, like Lane. Later, the Army reinstituted the draft for draft-eligible Nisei. And so when I was growing up and I was hearing about the, the bravery of the 442nd, the 100th, and um, I, I did not know this difference between what it meant to have the opportunity to volunteer and then what it meant that you were being drafted from the camps. Okay? So this was an incredibly difficult situation for the parents as well as the young men. Uh, they were considered suspect of being disloyal to the point that they needed to be imprisoned, but yet that same government considered them loyal enough to compel them for service to fight for a country and possibly die for a country uh, that was continued to imprison their families. Okay, so um, uh, it's just it's such such an untenable uh, untenable situation. Um, and what I really find remarkable about the Nisei soldiers, wherever and however they served, is that where, whether they were volunteers or draftees, whether they were from the islands, you know, from Hawaii, or they were from the mainland, meaning they were from the camps, that these guys overcame their differences in their backgrounds. Uh, they were very different in backgrounds, but um, they overcame their differences. And when they were together serving in what were the very bloodiest battles in France and Italy, they, they, were, real, they were true brothers. They bonded. They looked after each other. They looked out for each other. They made sacrifices to save each other. Um, and they all knew that they were representing the Japanese-American community and their families, especially the ones that came from camps, their families that were behind. 
and uh, the 100-442nd Regimental Combat Team continues today to have the distinction as the most decorated military unit in all of U.S. history for its size of length and service. Um, I am told by my colleagues um, that are uh, very senior in, in the military that everyone knows about the bravery of the 100th and 442nd. Their acts were truly legendary, and I really think we owe them everything. When I got to that part of your book, um, I, I mean, I of course, as I already said, I knew nothing about like really any details of of this history at all, uh, especially a lot of that um, like a political uh, uh, maneuvering and uh, a lot of the context for what led to the incarceration. But especially when I got to this part discussing the 442nd and, and the 100th, I was like, why isn't this a movie? <laughs> <laughs> like, of, of, we've done every other World War II movie. <laughs> How does this not exist? Um, and 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 sadly, I mean, American pastime is is one of I think maybe only a couple examples of popular media that uh, that go into this this part of our history. So, if somebody out there, please uh, make that movie with all of the considerations and sensitivity uh, that that you discuss in in your book. Um, while Lane finds a purpose in enlistments. Lyle at first uh, is having a lot of fun with his his jazz and dancing and and uh, this blossoming relationship with uh, with this young young woman. He ultimately finds direction and purpose with baseball. Mm-hmm. That's really the the meat of the the second part of this movie. How much were were sports and specifically baseball a part of the camps? You, you touched on it a little a little bit earlier, but uh, I'd love to know more. Yeah. So uh, first, um, as I mentioned, they were in uh, what was called uh, assembly centers. Uh, they did not know how long they were going to, where they were going to go and where they were being sent and how long they were going to be kept there. I've recently gone through all of the digitized copies of uh, certain assembly centers that produced a camp uh, assembly center newsletters. And I am really amazed at how quickly they got organized. So they didn't know when they got to the assembly centers how long they were going to be there. Uh, in some cases, it might have been a few months. And in, in most cases, it was several months. But just reading the newsletters of some of the camps, not all the camps, the assembly centers had newsletters. But very, very quickly, there are um, pages in these assembly center newsletters that are reporting on uh, sports events of all kinds, uh, baseball particularly, how they how leagues had formed, teams had formed, leagues had formed, uh, tournaments. Um, it was not just baseball, but kendo, karate, sumo, just just everything. <laughs> and I just their in- industry just really impresses me. Um, then, of course, when they were transferred to the uh, one of the 10 WRA long-term detention centers that we that we call the camps then they picked right up with this kind of organization usually these were uh, these were newsletters that were published uh, maybe twice a week and just extensive coverage of attendance and scores and play-by-play in some cases uh, and what I've seen lots of photos and references to is that not just participating in the sports, but uh, people were 
they were locked up, but they were, they were bored. <laughs> so, uh, go whether you were a baseball fan before or not. Uh, there are thousands of people would, would turn out to watch one of the baseball games because it was one of the things to do. And, uh, and then, uh, for especially the Nisei, uh, who were children, young adults, the teenagers, young adults, um, they, they only knew being an American. And this was something that they, they, they just saw, well, they were legitimately American <laughs> and, and this is what, this is an American pastime. Um, what I, what I have in my book is a, a, is a statistic. Some centers had as many as 117 teams playing in different leagues, complete with uniforms, coaches, umpires, and hotly contested championships. Sometimes the guards who were, uh, armed U.S. Uh, army, uh, soldiers, were the players' biggest fans. They would put down the rifles and cheer when someone smacked a double to left field or pulled off a late inning rally ending double play. Yeah, um, and you see that with the uh, maybe with the project director and, and his wife in the movie where they're they're sitting in the stands cheering on the uh, the Topaz team. Um, how how else do you see the the significance of baseball reflected in in this movie in particular? Um, I think, um, oh gosh, there's, there's, again, there's so much. Um, I think uh, it, it, it helps show how uh, a, a community formed, uh, how they were looking out for each other, they're sticking together, there, there was pride in um, wanting to uh, support their team, the, the Topaz team, especially when they were going to be playing a team from the community. Um, the whole uh, subtext of what was going to be Lyle's scholarship opportunity and and how he was robbed of that um, by uh, an act of violence um, is, uh, I think, also a great example of how random uh, the kinds of whether it was um, ill will, acts of ill will or cruelty or, or, or whatever um, it just had enduring, lasting impact on 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 their lives. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, a sense of what was at stake with baseball. That baseball game being a metaphor for their dignity. Uh, the the comment today is about dignity, win or lose. So it it wasn't just about winning a baseball game. And I think the um, the way that I, I hope I'm not spoil this is not, not part of any spoiler alerts here. <laughs> okay, I don't um, think any spoiler will not uh, <laughs> uh, diminish your enjoyment of the film. Okay. Um, and, and and if you're going in thinking that they don't win, uh, you've never seen a sports movie before. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's a different kind of victory. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a different kind of victory, uh, and it's uh, it's probably. Uh, even greater impact, I think, because it's a moral victory, not not just a sports victory. Yeah, there's the the decisive moment, of course, is um, Lyle stealing home, and uh, Billy, the the white um, a guard, I guess I, I don't know his exact title, but the one who's you know o- overseeing the camp, and he's the star player for the the home team. This decisive moment depends on Billy choosing to see Lyle as worthy of equality, um, and and that he admits that he didn't have the ball when he was tagged, and and Lyle ultimately um, wins the game for the for the team. 
So it's not some big grand slam and, and shooting out the lights mm-hmm. like you might see in, in, in other baseball movies. It is really, yeah, this a quieter moment um, that depends much more on, yeah, morality, humanity, uh, equal equal recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, uh, and speaking of that, uh, the, the baseball really helps rebuild the bond between Lyle and his father. Uh, initially, Lyle rejects his father's um, interest in, in forming this team. But even when it's no longer a pathway to college, uh, a pathway to a college scholarship, it is a pathway to, as, as you talked about, dignity and proving themselves to the com- community and, and to show their American identity. And we hear Kaz talking about uh, discovering baseball, being so good that no one could deny it, uh, and kids finally stop making fun of him. There's only a brief reference to Kaz's professional career. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to briefly mention the history of Japanese baseball because folks might not realize that baseball had become, uh, by the end of the 19th century, Jap- uh, Japan's most popular sport. Um, that In 1903, in the U.S., in the same year as the first World Series, there was the creation of the Fuji Athletic Club. By 1910, there were so many Japanese-American baseball teams that the uh, Japanese Pacific Coast Baseball League was formed with teams in eight large cities on the West Coast, and that the 1920s and 30s are considered the golden era of Nisei baseball when leagues thrived in Japanese-American communities along the Pacific Coast and, and Western mainland. And uh, it was interesting to learn, and, and you see this in the film, that during the war, Major League Baseball continued at FDR's urging even while players were being drafted. So it really shows how central baseball was to American identity during this time, and, and obviously this was embraced in the camps mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, normally... We have a segment called American Moments, uh, during which we call out some moments that that really scream America, like the obvious placement of an American flag or a giant truck, uh, which usually irks me as somebody who doesn't <laughs> own a car and bikes everywhere, uh, or a case of Budweiser or a location like a roadside diner or certain fashion choices or songs on the soundtrack. But today, I thought it'd be good to highlight moments that stood out to you that I probably didn't pick up on, moments that speak to Japanese culture, as well as uh, historically accurate moments that are worth acknowledging. Um, What sort of, uh, what what were some of the parts that stood out to you? Well, right in the opening scene, it's uh, the family gathering for a, a dinner, it might have been a celebration of, of some kind, birthday or something. And it's the food on the table. Uh, the sushi, just <laughs> this, uh, just what was on the table. Every Japanese-American family will, will have that same food on, on that table. That was great. And then uh, very quickly, uh, we see how important the record collection is. And uh, at the point when they are having to leave under the evacuation orders. Um, Another euphemism uh, today, we like to refer to that as the the forced removal. And Lyle smashed his records uh, and left the rubble in a pile in the corner. Uh, He can't take them because they can only take what they can carry. Uh, That was the phrase in the military exclusion orders. There's a scene the uh, part of a story in Gene Wotuxki Houston's Farewell to Manzanar. Uh, and there's other references to uh, some of the Issei mothers, the women who smashed their china and other things because 
they um, were so angry and didn't want to, that was, it was insulting to them. They didn't want to sell their prized possessions uh, for a pittance of their, of their value to these scavengers. Um, they, they started referring to them as vultures because they were taking advantage of the fact that they knew that Japanese Americans had to leave and that they had to leave things behind. And, and what my dad what, and his family were told was, well, you might as well take what little money I'm going to going to give you because tomorrow after you leave, I'll come back and take it for nothing. And so their reactions to this included saying, well, if I can't have it, then nobody will. And so him smashing his records was analogous to these other stories that I've heard about smashing their china or destroying things because um, it was part of their dignity. I think uh, the project director coming into their barrack on their first night I had seen memos that in the newsletters, there were letters from the project directors extending this kind of welcome message and uh, that when the buses started to arrive, there were those that were already there that were asked to be part of the welcome committees and hold up signs. And uh, so just showing in action the project director coming into the barrack at night, um, I think was a way to portray uh, how the project director saw uh, saw the role. Um, they are fixing up their barracks. They're ordering out of catalogs. Uh, this was part of trying to make the best of the situation. Um, there's uh, expressions that they really live by, and I grew up hearing. One was shigata kanai, which is to uh, accept what can't be helped. And uh, the other is gaman, which is to endure with dignity uh, and to, um, it is part of the putting on a brave face uh, and, and enduring. Um, I liked um, in your book, uh, there's like this ongoing relationship between a, a person who's writing, I believe they're writing to I want to say it was a librarian or somebody that was helping send materials. And I, I there were several moments where you where you heard from this person and or like letters um, that were being written to this person to help send uh, send stuff in. And I thought that was such a, I don't know, a, a kind of a, a bright spot in in the book of this this relationship and this connection between those uh, those two people. That was uh, Claire Breed who was the city, a city librarian in San Diego. And she got to know the Nisei children in downtown San Diego. And when they were taken away, she gave them penny postcards and said, please write to me. And they did. And kept up. And she was uh, someone who had never married, didn't have children of her own. And she really thought of these kids as her kids. And yes, there's a whole collection of the letters that she received from them. They're not, unfortunately, the collection that's now with the Japanese American National Museum does not include, for the most part, any letters of her in response to them. But these are the letters that she saved. And they were to uh, children in Poston. And so, yes, it was, uh, they, they, she sent the money. She bought them things and sent them things out of her own pocket, but also they saved their money and sent it to her and asked her, in some cases, to buy things for them that they couldn't get in camp. You know, like candy or fabric or 
you know, s- supplies of some kind. Yeah, so it's a, it was, it, that's a very um, touching part of uh, what we have as a, as a record. Um, just a few other uh, things that, that stood out to me. Um, uh, as a sansei, I'm pretty typical and not actually speaking any Japanese, but I sure understood the family Japanese. <laughs> that was in the that was in the the movie, especially when Nori is yelling at Lyle. You know, Yakamashi, you're being too noisy. You're creating a disturbance. <laughs> you know, Urusai, you're you're being a bother. Go away. You know, so we I I heard those words, <laughs> so I, I related to that, and I suspect other sansei will will too. Um, and maybe the last thing to mention is uh, jazz as being part, uh, you know, one of the sub sub themes here. And and uh, jazz was big uh, in the in the camps. Uh, Manzanar had a band that was a jazz band that was very well known called Jive Bombers. And Heart Mountain had a number of jazz bands that were given permission to leave the camps to play for dances in the surrounding communities. And, and I have thought that was that's a um, a great example of how they were ostracized and in some ways unwelcome in the community, but it was okay to be the hired help. Right. And there were a couple other points as, as we prepared to uh, talk for this episode um, that the, that you felt may relate to uh, real, real things that happened um, in, in very, in very subtle ways, like the uh, flying the kite, the, the child flying the kite. Do you want to uh, just mention that? Yeah, there is a uh, painting, a watercolor by an artist. Uh, she was Caucasian, but she was married to uh, Anise, Estelle uh, Ishigo. And so she was not required to go to camp, but in mixed marriages, uh, they were given the option and she uh, chose to remain with her husband and her family. Um, so she was in camp and she, um, there's many paintings that we have that were done by her. And one of them is um, one that I consider to be really quite beautiful and tender is entitled Boys with Kite. And it, it has, so I don't know that, that, that they use this as a reference, but it did strike me that um, it was, of course, we think of kite flying as something that is a childhood fun thing. And, but having in the painting as well as in the movie, they're, they're right up against and the kite in the painting is tangled up in the barbed wire. And they weren't supposed to go near the barbed wire. Uh, in fact, uh, there was also scenes um, that are very well known in terms of uh, testimonies and uh, the incarcerees talking about their experiences where guards have told them, get, get away from the fence, step back from the fence. And there were incidences of incarcerees that were shot, uh, that were murdered by guards because they uh, represented, they claimed that they were getting too close to the fence, they might have been trying to escape. Right. So this this juxtaposition of something that's innocent and child, a childhood um, reference uh, and, you know, children getting tangled up with or be next to this barbed wire, you know, I think is um, is uh, a reference to um, the untenable the untenable tension. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one one other story that uh, I'd, I'd love for you to speak to is the the haircut, uh, which is how we how we end the movie. Um, and and you thought that this might be uh, a reference or or relate to another true story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. would would you tell us more about that? Yeah, again, uh, not not to reveal any, uh, not to be a spoiler alert here, but the um, 
story that is very well known about Senator Daniel Inouye, who was uh, a long time, uh, very prestigious, um, distinguished senator from Hawaii and served in the 442nd. And in the course of his bravery uh, and was uh, received um, medals for this, lost his right arm. And uh, the story that he told often and has um, been reprinted, I, I included in, in my book, is that he's uh, honorably discharged and he's on his way back to Hawaii. He stops in San Francisco and is wearing a fresh uniform with all his decorations on and, as he described it, a hook in his right sleeve. And he thinks he needs a haircut and uh, is looking for a barber in San Francisco because he wanted to look his best, as he said, when he returned home in Honolulu. And he goes into a barber shop and nobody's there and is ignored and speaks up and says, you know, he would like a haircut. And the barber, one of the barbers in the shop asks him, are you Chinese? And he says to himself, well, I know where this is headed. And he says, well, I'm of Japanese ancestry. Now, mind you, he's standing there in his army uniform. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm Japanese. And, you know, why do you, why do you ask? And, and the barber says, we don't cut Jap hair. And he records uh, in his autobiography that his response was to himself was, I fought for people like you. And he says to the barber and the others barbers in the, the shop that I'm, I'm sorry for the, for the likes of you. And then he says, I went back to my ship. Wow. So sadly, we don't get the, the more meaningful resolution to that uh, story as we do in the in the movie where the uh, the barber is put in his place and Lane receives the dignity of of getting a haircut. But yeah, that's that's a, a really meaningful story and uh, just one part of uh, what I think there, there's so so many mm-hmm. uh, parts of this movie that do draw from reality uh, in in subtle and 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 not so subtle ways. Um, as we get to the end of our, our episode and, and circling back to the course you teach, uh, you know, one thing you mentioned about uh, your students and, and their reactions to uh, not learning about this in school, and they're, they're often angry uh, that this wasn't a part of their education. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, yeah, the, the, the ramifications uh, today. Uh, in what ways does this part of uh, history connect to contemporary issues? And, and what are the lessons you feel are mm-hmm. most important to learn? What I like to describe to my students is that I hope that exploring and understanding the experiences of the Japanese American incarceration might give them a framework of reference for understanding what's going on in our society today. Uh, for instance, there was active subterfuge to uh, blur the distinction between a non-citizen, an alien, and, and a citizen. Citizenship did not protect the rights of the Nisei. This is, um, I think, particularly significant to them as they see lots of forms of what today we call othering, and uh, that there is a legacy 
of prejudice and violence against um, marginalized communities, um, and especially uh, Asians, the Atlanta shootings, the, the COVID hate crimes. Uh, and now uh, this realization that all Asians are put at risk by this, um, this feeling of out there that uh, I'm mad and somebody needs to be held responsible and, and they all look alike. Um, my uh, husband's family is Chinese, and my parents-in-law, um, who are uh, contemporaries of, of, of my parents, were in Palo Alto, California, had Japanese-American friends. And my parents-in-law had told me that you know one day their Japanese-American friends were there in school with them, and then one day they weren't. And they really didn't know what was happening to them. Um, and what they were embarrassed about, and uh, to this to the day that they were telling me this, you know, into their 90s, that they had Chinese friends who were wearing buttons that said they were Chinese, so that they weren't being uh, accosted on the street. Uh, like, you know, why are you here? You're, you know, you're you're supposed to have been taken away. Um, and so I think anything that helps. Uh, understand this, you know, the complexity of how not only as Japanese Americans, but as Asian Americans, and not only as Asian Americans, but part of a multicultural society, uh, others are, are others are viewed. And the challenge of overcoming the prejudice based on the way someone looks. Yeah. Uh, one of the, I think it was in your introduction to the book, uh, but of course, one of the major events in recent history uh, is 9-11. Is and um, you relate kind of the, the Islamophobia and the, the immediate reactions uh, of our government to, uh, to that event. Do you want to just briefly mention that? Yeah, sure. Um, there's a great deal of solidarity by the Japanese American community with the Muslim community. It started immediately after 9-11 and it endures to this day. Because um, there are many, especially descendants of incarcerees, that say, no one stood up for us and we need to stand up for others. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting to me, as, as I was thinking about um, having this conversation with you, that we, we may be in another moment uh, of this kind of othering and, and really high tension uh, among various communities with what's going on in, in Israel mm -hmm. and Gaza. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know, have you, have you thought at all about that? Or have your students been talking at all about this? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in, in addition to that tragedy there there's um you know the border conflicts between you know with armenia and uh so i have students of the whole spectrum of of, of backgrounds and identities and they do use this information this framework as as a way to think about their own family histories uh the need to the motivation for them to want to know more about uh, their own immigrant family immigrant experiences uh one student in a past semester came up to me and said that when she was home uh for a weekend or a holiday she was telling her family about this class that she was taking and she had never heard before that point, but her mother told her that her grandfather, so my student's great-grandfather, was serving in the Navy and was on an aircraft carrier that had left Pearl Harbor for whatever reason and wasn't in Pearl Harbor uh, at the time of the, the attack. 
and how she never knew that her great-grandfather had, one, been in the Navy, and two, had survived by some reason uh, the, the Pearl Harbor attack. And, and so it was just, and I, there's so many stories like that where they come to me and tell me that as a result of telling their family about, oh, this is what I've been studying and this is what I've been learning. And, and they, they find out things about, uh, that are meaningful about their own history. Yeah. Uh, it just goes to show how important your work is for uh, this younger generation, even for folks who don't have uh, Japanese heritage, uh, that uh, the, the, the lessons to take uh, from this part of our, our, our history and uh, from your book can continue to influence and, and ideally, uh, as you mentioned, between the, the, uh, the Asian community and uh, uh, the Muslim community, builds solidarity and, and recognition of our, of our common humanity uh, so that when tragedies do unfold, we, we don't revert to racism and hatred and, uh, and uh, the kinds of, of, of othering um, that you talked about. What's, um, what else do you take away from, from this film uh, th- thematically and, and, and the values that are in it? Well, it's great to have a film like this that would introduce and and explain uh, the incarceration experience and its ramifications to a general audience. It's also an educational piece for those of us who are descendants because um, now increasingly as there's the fourth generation, fifth generation, sixth generation, they will not have known their Issei or Nisei ancestors. And this would be something, this would be a way to help them relate to what happened to their family members that they would not now have a personal relationship with because of the generational difference. And I think also just having the dramatic presentation brings home um, the trauma, the emotional crosshairs that they were in. Um, I think for everyone, um, if, if we're using the number now of more than 126,000 who fell under the incarceration orders, exclusion orders. There are 126,000 individuals that had to make decisions for themselves as to what was the best thing to do, and they differed. There was no one size fits all. Um, although in terms of talking about this in broad brush and in sound bites, it's easy to think that uh, their experiences were monolithic, and they most definitely were not. And I think everybody had to make their own decisions for whatever whatever their considerations were, and they were all difficult choices. And I think we have to honor and appreciate that they had to do what they thought was best. I, uh, I think uh, just having yet another piece out there that brings the story forward, especially one that I think captures so much of the of those kinds of difficult considerations um, is great to have. Yeah. Will you show it in class or will you, uh, you know, bring this in as, as part of your, your teaching in the future? Well, as I mentioned, it's, it's inevitable that in every semester, there's someone that's interested in baseball, <laughs> usually someone who themselves have, have played or, or, or enjoy playing baseball. And there's a, there's a student this semester that was really excited to hear about the film. 
uh, I do give them a list of films and lots of references that if they're interested in various elements that we've covered in class or that are in the book uh, to encourage them to to see it. And so it's, this is definitely on, on, on that list. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I was just surprised that uh, surprised at myself that I had known about it. So I was really great to have this chance to to get into it. Well, now with 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 our efforts uh, on the show and and your efforts, now more people can go out and 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 see this movie and and appreciate it as as much as we did. Um, thank you so much. I, I hope everyone will will also read your book. I mean, do the students have to read your book as well for <laughs> for class? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, so at first, um, I was, I was a little reluctant to do that. Um, Simon and Schuster's a publisher and the uh, publisher asked me at one point if I would, if I was going to require my students to read my book. And at that point I was, I was a little uncomfortable about saying, saying yes. But one of the reasons why I wrote the book, I, I compiled the materials really based on the materials that I assembled for the class was to realize that there wasn't uh, any one definitive place out there that pulled the various elements together uh, that incorporated the firsthand testimonies, uh, the, the, you know, the firsthand voices, as we've called it editorially in the book. And it just became, he said, yes, I had to realize that it was just really the most efficient way of getting the information to the, to the students. So yes, they do, they, they now do read my book. And, and I'm also uh, here from colleagues here at USC and in, other, in high schools and in other places that they are using the, at least some portions of the, of the book in curriculum. So that's, that's also a goal of having it be a resource with lots of appendices and a teaching guide and and hopefully told in a way that's both uh, I've been told that it's uh can't put it down but hard to keep going. Yeah, I I'd say that's uh that that describes my experience of um digesting the book. Uh, I mean it really was just absolutely eye-opening to me and it feels so rewarding um, and, and kind of, uh, you know, like I'm meeting a celebrity to, to uh, <laughs> be talking about this, uh, th- this book with, uh, with the author. I mean, it's, it's, it's just so, um, it's, it's all encompassing and just every other page is uh, a new revelation. Um, and the voices themselves uh, from the time are so, add so much to it. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share just as, as we wrap up? No, I think uh, it's just been wonderful to have this chance to talk about this, uh, talk about this with you and be part of this series. Um, I uh, just appreciate the chance to get to do this. Wonderful. Well, as I said at the beginning, I mean, really can't thank you enough for, uh, for being part of the show. And that's a wrap on American Pastime. Thank you so much again, Susan, for, for taking the time to talk to us and to help us better understand this movie and this part of, uh, of history. And thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave a positive review, follow us on Instagram at American Scene Pod, and we'll see you next time.